difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and how it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Keith Phipps, here with Genevieve Kosky, Tasha Robinson, Scott Tobias. Every week we get together to talk over a classic film and consider how it relates to a current movie. Hey, let's take a walk while we discuss this week's pairing. Okay, hold on a second, I just sat down. Tasha, we don't have a second, walk with me. This week we're going to be stepping through the corridors of power with not one, but two movies that ask us to look at the American political system and consider if it couldn't be better with a little pragmatic idealism and maybe a little romance. Tasha, brief us. Yes, Mr. Podcast Host. Tasha, we've known each other for 20 years. You can call me Keith. Yes, sir, Mr. Podcast Host. First up, we'll be talking about The American President, a 1995 film scripted by Aaron Sorkin, directed by Rob Reiner, and starring Michael Douglas and Annette Benning as, respectively, President Andrew Shepard and environmental lobbyist Sidney Ellen Wade. A widower, Shepard shocks the nation and jeopardizes his 63% approval rating when he starts dating Sydney, making her a target of his right-wing foes. Then we'll shift our focus to Longshot, a new romantic comedy starring Seth Rogen as a disillusioned reporter who reconnects with his old babysitter, played by Charlize Theron, now a Secretary of State, making an uphill run for president. Thanks, Tasha. That was very efficient and informative. Have a seat. We, we could have stayed seated this whole time. What was the point of all that walking? I don't know. Dialogue is more compelling if there's camera movement going on? This is a podcast. Yes, it is. And after a short break, I'm going to launch into a long, uninterrupted monologue that will offer an argument so cohesive and persuasive, it will silence all opposition. What would happen if I called Sidney Wade and asked her to be my date at the state dinner on Thursday evening? president can't just go out on a date. I'm having dinner at the White House. I'm having lunch at the Kremlin. I don't know what happened. One minute I was calling him a mockery of an environmental leader. The next minute I had a date. She didn't say anything about me. Well, no, sir, but I can pass her a note before study hall. Would you like to dance? <sighs> yeah, I guess. I mean, yes, sir. I'd love to. Never mind that she is the hired gun of an ultra-liberal political action committee. And never mind that his 12-year-old daughter is sleeping down the hall. Lucy, are you okay with this? My having dinner with a lady? Dad, it's cool. Just go for it. Never mind any of that, folks. My name is Bob Rumson, and I'm running for president. In the past seven weeks, 59% of the country has begun to question your family values. This poll doesn't talk about my presidency. This poll talks about my life. I, I gotta nip this in the bud. This has catastrophe written all over it. Sydney, the man is the leader of the free world. He's brilliant. He's funny. He's an above average dancer. Isn't it possible our standards are just a tad high? Let's travel back in time. Not that far back, though it might seem like a long trip. The year is 1993. After 12 years of railing against the policies and culture of the Reagan-Bush years, from deregulation to foreign intervention to the rise of the religious right, the Democrats have finally elected a president, Bill Clinton. But any hopes that simply electing a left-leaning president with a populist touch will fix everything fade pretty quickly. 
Even the law that for every action there's an equal and opposite reaction doesn't account for the backlash that greets the Clinton administration. First with the rapid ascent of right-wing media figures like Rush Limbaugh, the subsequent onrush of difficult to parse but just as difficult to kill scandals like Whitewater and Travelgate, and the disastrous midterm elections of 1994. Dogged by uncomfortable rumors before his election and accompanied by a powerful and thus divisive first lady, Clinton did not instantly heal the nation by offering logically infallible common sense solutions to America's greatest problems. But what if he did? That's more or less the starting point for the American president, which opens a few years into a presidency in which Michael Douglas's eloquent, charming, playful Andrew Shepard has won overwhelming national approval by telling it like it is and with the help of a support staff that includes characters played by Michael J. Fox, Martin Sheen, and Anna DeVere Smith, skillfully pushing legislation through a sometimes oppositional Congress. But even presidents with a 63% approval rating aren't infallible, nor are they necessarily satisfied. As the film opens, Shepard has delivered a speech that ended cryptically with the words, Americans can no longer afford to pretend they live in a great society. There's still work to be done on crime, on gun control, on the environment, and more. And Shepard is working hard to find practical solutions that don't find him surrendering his ideals when the unexpected happens. He falls in love with a woman who's like him in many ways, Sidney Wade, a hard-charging environmental lobbyist who puts her beliefs first but still gets the job done. Arriving at the White House for the first time, with little expectation of even meeting the president, much less falling in love with him, Sidney pauses to savor the Capra-esque quality of the moment. This is Sorkin's script hanging a lantern on both an obvious source of inspiration, Frank Capra's idealism-fueled Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, and that inspiration's roots in fantasy. Capra's own politics could be a little confusing. He was a Republican who stood up to Franklin Delano Roosevelt, even expressing admiration for Franco and Mussolini. But he also went all in to support America's war efforts in World War II with his Why We Fight films, and ended his life opposing the war in Vietnam. Mr. Smith has less to do with the particulars of politics than beliefs, at least theoretically, shared by all honest participants in American democracy. It's a beguiling fantasy of our common values triumphing over what divides us. To that, the American president adds at least a suggestion of depicting how politics is actually practiced, with nods to the two-fisted business of winning votes and the occasional need to compromise now for another victory down the road but not enough to sour the wish fulfillment giving audiences the all-things-to-all-people liberal healer that America maybe thought it was electing in 1992, and sprinkles a winning romance on top of it all. The film remains enchanting, powered by Douglas and Benning's charming chemistry, but it also looks positively ancient and a little shopworn. Sorkin has returned again and again to projects in which wise middle-aged men set the world straight with forceful erudition, including a series, The West Wing, which often played like an extension of this film. Beyond that, while the American president's fantasy version of Washington may always have been only loosely tethered to the real Washington, it now seems positively disconnected. In an era in which a president's affair with a porn star barely makes the news because of even more shocking scandals, who can buy a film in which the thought of gasp, a single president having consensual sex with an unmarried woman will shock a nation. Yet there's that word again, Capra-esque. The American president isn't a film that wants to show us the America we live in, but the America we want to live in. Maybe that's why it's possible to poke holes in the film's high ideals and willful naivete while still enjoying and maybe even believing in it. People want leadership, Mr. President, and in the absence of genuine leadership, they'll listen to anyone who steps up to the microphone. They want leadership. They're so thirsty for it, they'll crawl through the desert toward a mirage, and when they discover there's no water, they'll drink the sand. Lewis, 
We have had presidents who are beloved, who couldn't find a coherent sentence with two hands and a flashlight. People don't drink the sand because they're thirsty. They drink the sand because they don't know the difference. All right, everybody, what's your experience with this film? I had not seen it in since it first came out. I saw it in the theaters, and I know it's on cable all the time. I think, Genevieve, I think you mentioned growing <laughs> up with this film on TV a lot, but uh, it had been a totally new experience uh, seeing it again for the second time. Uh, yeah, this movie is super familiar to me. This might be my mom's favorite movie of all time. Um, definitely up there and one that was regularly like left on whenever it was come across on TV, uh, along with Big, which is an, we we're really doing my mom's favorite movies on this podcast. <laughs> uh-huh. guys, maybe she'll actually start listening now. Um, so, yeah, I mean, this movie, it's probably been a while since I've watched it beginning to end, although certainly since I have done that since it came out. So, I mean, I don't know. This is kind of a comfort food movie for me. I definitely process it more as a rom-com than a political film. That wasn't always the case, I think, for a long time, especially pre-West Wing and reevaluation of the West Wing. I did kind of consider it more of a, you know, political, not even fantasy. I don't think I had the context to think of it as a fantasy at that point. But I did think of it as like a political movie, you know, and now, as you say in the keynote, Keith, like with just such a different political context around us, it's really kind of hard to process it that way. So I choose to focus on it more as a romantic comedy and its success in that uh, respect. (laughs) What about you guys? I, of course, saw it when it came out. And I think it's one of those that just is on cable all the time. And so you maybe flip by it every once in a while. But this is the first time in a very long time that I actually watched it from start to finish. And and um, it's fine. <laughs> I think it's okay. I mean, I, Aaron Sorkin's voice as a uh, screenwriter is, is uh, one I've come to you know, it's sort of a familiarity breeds contempt thing with him, <laughs> um, and I and I've started to really enjoy uh, directors like David Fincher, who can kind of push back a little bit and take the some of the sarcasms away. Um, Rob Reiner's not that kind of no, director, no. Um, so there's a lot of that that can be pretty irritating here. Um, but I actually find that it is a very interesting snapshot of that political moment. I mean, when we see it as it may seem shop worn or it may seem ancient or something like that. It may seem to use your hated word dated, but it really does kind of get at what what things were like at the time. I mean, it, you know, I mean, there's something like that. Were, you know, this was. It, it seems absurd now that a president having a consensual relationship, uh, a single president having a consensual relationship, would be a family values problem. But it would have definitely been a family values problem in 1995. You know, now of course. Who knows? But with the rise of the religious right, as you mentioned in your keynote, that's all they were about. It was family values and finding ways to use that as a cudgel to beat the hell out of the Democratic Party and and get the base riled up. And it was all about these types of issues. Um, I mean, it's just kind of funny, of course, now just just seeing how completely debased (laughs) their president is. But this would this makes this makes sense. To me. Does it make sense that uh, America would elect a single man, even a widower, as president in, at, at that time, do you think? Yeah, m- maybe so. I mean, I don't know. I mean, we, we, I guess we're, we've... He's so charming, though. We're I mean, capable... How can you not elect him? We're capable of doing... We're capable of electing an African-American president, so I yeah. guess now, I yeah. guess now, in retrospect, it seems like, well, sure, we can elect a single person. Yeah. The question that I have that i don't think the film ever answers is like how long his wife has been dead he was clearly a 
widower while he I thought one year one Is year right? from when because he was a widower during the campaign mm. so it, but campaigns I think, last my sense is not not that long but but the fact that, that he hasn't waited that long this never comes up so i assume you know a respect a, a, a respectable time <laughs> uh in the past well he's a couple years into his presidency by this point isn't he so she's been dead for maybe three or four years yeah. total sure yeah. which uh, you know is a respectable amount of time in terms of uh kind of what grief counseling tells you about moving on with your life hmm. But, I mean, a part of what this film is about is about the judgment that comes with, uh, you know, having somebody in this position do anything whatsoever. You know, you're under a microscope and people care way, way too much about your personal life. Um, for myself, I'm going to play the the Genevieve in this particular podcast. I'd never seen this movie before. Oh. Yeah, it, it came mm. out during a period where... I don't think Wild Horses could have dragged me to a theater to see a rom-com and like a political rom-com starring Michael Douglas is just like a big sack of things that at that era I did not like and did not want to be exposed to. So uh, it is, if you don't watch a lot of cable, it's a really easy movie to give a skip. And I did. So yeah, this was my first experience with it. To me, it doesn't seem that dated at all. Like the filmmaking seems dated. It it seems very Capra-esque. The way the story unfolds, the tone, the the God awful soundtrack music, which was Academy Award nominated. Really my biggest (laughs) problem with this film. Film. Like, I felt like I was having syrup poured into my ears throughout the entire movie. Um, all of those things feel dated, but the politics actually feel really surprisingly relevant. I mean, the idea that the press is immediately and completely absorbed with this guy's sex life, and it's way more interesting to them, whether he's knocking boots and with who, than, than his policies, up to and including American attacks on a foreign country resulting in deaths. It just seems so plausible to me that the press would get this obsessive. And then you have a right-wing pundit just mercilessly and hypocritically hyper-focusing in on this guy's personal life and making hay out of it in order to avoid engaging with the issues or his popularity. All of that seems extremely relevant to me politically right now. I I had no problem buying a lot of what happens in this movie as entirely plausible today. Now, not with Trump, who, like, at this point, I'm pretty convinced he could have sex with the cameras rolling, like, on his desk in the Oval Office uh, with... Tasha, don't. Tasha, Tasha. Don't put it in the world. Images are powerful things. (laughs) Somebody's got a visual imagination. You're you're a powerful storyteller, Tasha. I was was about to go go into so much detail about toys and participants. and uh, We we could just go to a real Kevin Smith place here. But my point is, uh, I think at this point, everybody would just kind of roll their eyes and move on. But... <laughs> the hypocrisy of uh, the American political machine is such that anybody else doing something like this, I think, would run up against exactly what happens in this movie. It all seemed very plausible to me, uh, kind of like treacly and and sweet and removed and calculated, but still very plausible and, as I say, very relevant. How did the romance work for you, particularly the Michael Douglas of it all? Because that's always been a little bit of my problem with this movie is I just don't buy or particularly like Michael Douglas as a romantic lead, Mm -hmm. even though I think he he works well as a president, a charming president here. And if you like look at this movie as a romance between like the office of the president and the American people, which is certainly another way to process it. I think he works in that role. But I just 
I mean, obviously, I'm <laughs> putting my opinion first and asking yours, Tasha, but I no, don't gonna, particularly like I'm not, him. As I'm a, not going to disagree with you. It's yeah. not like you're some kind of Scott Tobias or something. <laughs> and, and I feel a, like a, an obligatory need to push back. Uh, I, I guess I had more problem with Annette Benning, oh, um, really? who <laughs> she she feels so Shirley MacLaine in this role. Yeah. It just it everything about her performance to me feels very put on. And Michael Douglas is just one of those iconic people who at this point is just Michael Douglas. Like, you know exactly what you're getting. Uh, so, he, like, he doesn't feel forced or fake to me. He just feels Michael Douglas-y. I agree well, that... Well, sort of. I mean, this is on the heels of a lot of scumbag roles. A scumbag, yeah, this is one year, is and, one and, year and, like, after Basic Instinct, isn't it? Or what, two was, years? No, two years it was, after Basic Instinct. It was 92, but, like, falling down between here there. I think Disclosure was right before this. Yeah, and, 94. And, that uh, was 94. That's right. Yeah, so, like, seeing Michael Douglas play, an, uh, you know, just unabashedly nice guy was, was kind of a novelty in 1995. He's not an unabashedly nice guy. He he straight up sells her out for political profit. Yeah, he messes with, and he messes with her. Even, like, part of their courtship is him, like like kind of taunting her yeah he's he's i mean he's certainly not a scumbag he's not uh he's nicer he, yeah you know. he's nicer than the guy in basic instinct <laughs> he's, he's nicer than the guy in the game he's nicer than the guy in wall street he's nicer than like all of the michael Douglases ever but uh now, now i agree with you that as a romantic lead he's kind of huh really but uh i i do i did find him presidential i just i guess i didn't buy their initial connection i didn't see anything magical between them that would explain that connection i kind of like the way the relationship rolls out as a relationship like it's it, there's so much shorthanding that's necessary in movies where you see a start to finish relationship and it, it happens here as well and i think the early parts suffer but the kind of the middle parts where you're seeing them get both get closer and navigate the difficulty of it i think is pretty well orchestrated I think he responds well, if there's any spark there at the beginning, is that he does respond well to her candor and wit in that scene. I mean, a president is used to people, you know, not pushing back against him, being uh, giving him, uh, and, and she kind of, you know, his introduction to her is her coming after his policies a bit. And I think there's something kind of exciting to him about that in the moment. It felt, it felt right to me. But what was weird to me, though, about that more, what was stranger to me was just how creepily coercive things things are from the, the start you know he there's talk- such a power differential oh, exactly yeah, for right. sure. i mean he ta- and he talks about he talks to her about how the oval office is you know the greatest home court advantage, you know, advantage in terms of uh diplomacy but i mean surely in romance it's equally <laughs> so i mean like you know he imme- her first trip to the white house he's got her she's alone in the oval office and i mean it doesn't get the power dynamics don't get more unequal than than that and he seems so aware of it too which i think is maybe where a little bit of the distaste comes from like he's he's doing this on purpose you, you know to to throw her off guard that said I think we're meant to process it as him doing that because he recognizes and admires the fact that she can roll with it and stand up to him and, you know, recover and get back to herself very quickly. And I actually really like Annette Bening's performance in this Mm -hmm. because of the way that she embodies that quality in Sydney, like the way that she goes from being like really thrown and overwhelmed 
but you can see her kind of recentering and gathering herself and like getting back in the game, so to speak. You know, there's several scenes, especially in the early parts of their courtship, that sort of has that dynamic. I'm also thinking, of course, of the phone call uh, where she doesn't believe it's him, yeah. you know, and her ability to not quite counter his punches, but like absorb them and maybe get a couple of her own in in the process, I think is what he responds to in her and I think Benning does a really good job of bringing that across. I think there's also an interesting sort of I don't want to say power differential but romantic differential in that they both know that he's just not going to be available most of the time. Like he's mm. he's if you leave aside the uh like vast power and popularity like he he suddenly becomes a pretty bad boyfriend who has to cancel at the last minute all the time. It's just very unavailable most of the time and just getting close to him means falling under a level of hyper embarrassing scrutiny and it threatens her job. Like every aspect of this relationship is bad for her except the actual human connection. So that human connection has to be really strong in order to make it convincing, unless you're like looking at the power differential itself as as an advantage, as an attraction. You know, the idea of somebody getting close to the president, you know, being inherently sexy in and of itself, which that starts to get complicated given your comparison with Bill Clinton. Yeah, but we didn't know what was coming at that point. <laughs> you know, so I, I guess we didn't know the full extent no, of what was we, coming. We, I mean, we had whole, some like, hints. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, the power dynamic and the use of the Oval Office as as a means of seduction. Sure. Um, yes, it plays a little differently now, doesn't it? Well, and, and if we're talking about this film as a Clinton era political fantasy, the fact that Hillary that it's <laughs> is, yeah. that has gotten rid of the first lady is significant, isn't it? Well, yeah, for sure. There's there's a whole like stream of you know '90s political movies that kind of try to grapple with with Hillary Clinton and one way. I think Independence Day doesn't Independence it, Day. It, it kills its Hillary Clinton esque first lady. I think twice. <laughs> I think she's doesn't <laughs> yeah. like she's dead, and then she's actually not dead, but then they kill her anyway. I mean, there, there, there's I don't know how much you you know psychoanalyzing you want to read into that. Uh, I think part of the wish fulfillment here as gross as it sounds is, is a Clinton without the, the Hillary Clinton baggage, you know, which is not fair to her, especially at this point, but you know, there that's still the, it's still the fantasy that's being put up there. Cause I, I don't think there's any way to see this except as sort of a, a fantasy version of Bill Clinton. Right. I mean, I don't know if Andrew Shepard necessarily works as a like one-to-one comparison. I think where the comparison does come through is in his staff. Like there's a lot of direct corollaries to to Clinton's staff. Michael J. Fox, obviously George Stephanopoulos. Mm. Anna DeVere Smith's press secretary was was, uh, Dee 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 Myers. Myers. Yeah. Yeah. I was too young to know this at the time, but uh, Mac McLarty uh, was President Clinton's lifelong friend, political mentor, and first chief of staff, the same way that Martin Sheen's character is uh, his lifelong friend, political mentor, and first chief of staff. So um, it sounds like the corollaries maybe play out a bit more in the people surrounding Andrew Shepard, maybe up to and including his wife or lack thereof. But the character itself is conceived, I feel, so much more as a romantic lead than a I guess he's like a, a political figure in that like, but it's such a romanticized version of politics that it doesn't, it feels divorced from reality to me. Although a part of it that, again, why why am I the pushback person? The part of it, again, that- You just love the American president uh, so much. I guess I want to marry it. And I, I want that horrible soundtrack to play as uh, this, this movie is walking down the aisle. 
the thing that feels really real and very Clinton-esque is the the obsession with polls, the obsession yes. with how are we polling, mm. how are we doing, what's what are our 63%, numbers? Sixty-three percent, sixty-three percent. Yeah, say it so and, many times in the first like five minutes and perpetually dropping. I it's I remember definitely a post post war room film, isn't it? Yeah, to go back to don't they even call it the war room at some point? I feel like in the movie. I don't know. Maybe I'm making that up. Go ahead. I just remembered so much hay being made out of Clinton's like watching of the polls and Clinton using the polls uh, to decide some of his, you know, he had a huge reputation as a flip flopper, which I never quite understood because it's like, I'm here to represent the American people. We polled them. This is what they want. This is the stance I'm taking. But people like Bob Dole freaked out over the idea that you would consult the American people about what to do instead of standing on uh, staunch morality and telling them what they weren't allowed to do, e.g. abortion. So the whole idea of a a presidency that is fundamentally obsessed with watching the numbers and pleasing people, that feels very real and and very much uh, a reflection of what a lot of the Clinton presidency was about, or at least what it had a reputation for being about. The the film, though, I feel is also a fantasy about what people wish the Clinton (laughs) years Mm -hmm. were, that that he would get to this place where he would get past the horse trading and be able to stand up for a set of ideals that for a liberal person were important. And so this is kind of a, you know, this presents us with so much a better version of a Clinton type, but someone who is better in in almost every way. And when he does fail, it's because he fails as a result of being Clinton-esque and of betraying this environmental legislation in order to get the votes he needs for this crime legislation. And so it's like, it's very, um, I mean, that's that's a very Clinton-esque thing to do. And that's that's where he loses, you know, Cindy's love and vote. <laughs> you lost my vote. It's a good line. Yeah. There's, a, You've got there's more, some very you know, snappy Aaron Sorkin-esque dialogue in here. Uh, yeah, I, I went into it this time kind of prepared to be a little exasperated with the, the Sorkin-ness of it. And... I don't think I was exasperated as I was expecting to be. I mean, there's definitely a lot of uh, ticks recognizable. Scott, I believe you called yeah. out your your favorite well, earlier. Wait, wait, is, is uh, Aaron Sorkin's right behind me? Isn't he? <laughs> he is. He's been sitting there for 10 minutes waiting for you to say something about him. He looks really impatient. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, there's just the, the dialogue. It's so snappy and there's just such a innate wit to all of these characters you know like there's not a dum-dum among them and the Uh, decisiveness is really appealing like no matter whether they're uh, agreeing or disagreeing whether they're all in on policy or uh whether uh michael douglas and michael j fox are just like sniping back and forth back and forth like playing verbal ping pong the the crispness and the decisiveness of everyone like everyone is smart enough to defend their opinions uh without getting too heated but while still getting heated enough to make it interesting yeah i mean i I think that's kind of the beyond capra i think both the romance and the political aspects of this are for sort of a snappier dialogue driven older version of hollywood uh which i think may have been part of why this movie caught fire as well i I, that kind of stuff was in short supply in 1995 and people weren't kind of used to the sorkin take on it and uh you can you know you can kind of see why this was so refreshing then it was also an era that saw a lot of really successful rom-coms. I mean, it was kind of a, a golden age of romantic comedies. And this, uh, I still maintain that this is more of a romantic comedy than anything else, but it's very different from uh, most romantic comedies and particularly what was, was out there or was out at the time. 
So I think that also maybe is why it had a, a appeal and, and sticking power, Tasha excluded, <laughs> you know, uh, for, for, for audiences that, you know, uh, liked and uh, kept up with rom-coms. It's kind of a Reese's Peanut Butter Cup of a movie, though, where, where it's a little bit of, you know, a little bit of politics, a little bit of romance. I don't know. It's it's it almost feels to me as fun as I thought Douglas and Benning, as I think Douglas and Benning are together in this film it feels like the the politics were really what was novel about it though the politics in the mm-hmm. setting i i don't sure i don't think there's enough of a enough romantic comedy elements if you remove the politics from it to, to sustain uh, a love story i don't think it's quite there yet which is for me why it's always been inseparable for me yeah i just think like structurally it follows the pattern of a rom-com like so so closely you know from the the meet cute, meet cute to the you know kind of struggle to make the first date happen you know mm-hmm. to the third act breakup yeah you know? and of course yeah. the big romantic gesture at the end like the arc of it right is so and she, run, and she somehow makes her way to the white yeah house she runs that, to the oval office instead of to airport security speech yeah <laughs> um so um yeah it, ha- it has all that i mean it's it's interesting though to think about the politics of the film because you know for a, a big popular hollywood movie it's tricky because of course half your audience is is of one political persuasion half is the other you're all over the you're all over the kind of the the, the map and so how do you make a movie um that isn't you know tagged as one thing or another i mean this is distinctly a liberal minded movie but at the same time i think there is a there's a larger argument uh and a larger kind of seduction here too that has to do with uh, the integrity and the grandeur of the office itself, you know, and, mm-hmm. and and living up to that ideal, which is really something that isn't about policy. That's just about dignity. And America may be putting its its best, most elegant foot foot forward and maybe perhaps. Yeah. So, I mean, just it has to do with kind of a, a vague ide- idealism that isn't necessarily associated with uh, policy. Yeah. It's, I told you I was quaint. Yeah. Well, I mean, the thing is, though. Beyond like a dearth of dialogue driven films, romantic comedies, I don't think you get anything this sort of clear in its, in its political point of view now. But I don't think you, but that being said, I don't think it was that common then either. I can't really think of another film that was explicitly. Uh, apart from something like Dave? sneakers, which was very you know overtly overt in its politics, you don't you don't get that many overtly political films uh, released to, to you know on, on this scale in 1995 either. I mean, I I just mentioned it, but uh, Dave, which is yeah. about, like mm-hmm. I, I don't remember exactly what year it, it was, but it definitely 93. Feels, okay, oh yeah, it definitely feels like the what, like the Armageddon to this film's deep impact or something? (laughs) Was there there just a a hiccup, a bubble in the early 90s? Because you also had uh, Bob Roberts in 1992. Was there just a period Mm -hmm. where movies about politics and uh, left versus right were a, a fad? Well, I mean, the the Bob Roberts is kind of apart from all that because it was it's, it's a, such a smaller film. It's outside mm. the system. Um, it had know. a huge impact, though. I mean, it it had a really wide reach for what it was. No, I mean, it was a, it was a, a, a indie hit, but definitely an indie indie film. I don't think I think it was way too politically radical for something a studio could support. Um, I think it was uh, one of those kind of mini majors that put ended up putting it out. But but that but, that but becomes it's, but it's rare. It, it was it was still fairly rare for it's always rare for explicitly political films to find their way into 
Well, sure, because for the most part, uh, films uh, films about politics have a tendency to be angry. You know, films about politics have a tendency to get made because somebody has a political agenda, and it's very hard to have a political agenda these days that doesn't come with some level of anger. And like right now, you do have a large family of openly conservative films coming out, uh, and they all seem to have that touch of rage, just sort of you know how how could anybody believe anything other than our beliefs and it doesn't seem like there's a countervailing bunch of liberal films uh unless you kind of follow the career of people like john cusack but when you do get them they tend to be kind of clumsy and ham-footed and and super super angry i will uh leave out the entire field of documentary uh because that's it's such a different animal and documentary it's always muckraking documentaries i mean mostly (laughs) they say that uh, reality has a liberal bias like there's there's a lot of like films about the environment say um that would be seen as extremely liberal or extremely progressive or extremely left-wing but those are always coming out i do think that you that there's still room for films like bob roberts that are just like a left-wing indie from somebody's point of view that's like radical and different as opposed to heavily forwarding an agenda in an attempt to get people to vote or think a certain way. But I don't think this movie is trying to get anybody to vote or think a certain way. It, I think it has that kind of bedrock, this kind of behavior is is good and this kind of behavior is bad kind of thing, which like leaked into West Wing as well, didn't it? I, I never watched that mm-hmm. show much but isn't it fundamentally about a Democrat White House kind of dealing with Republicans? Yes, I mean, very especially much. in the early seasons, yeah. I think, uh, yeah. Which, which when I was watching, it was definitely a show that would pause to have the president berate somebody uh, who was doing something bad politically. Yeah, but it's also with this and the the West Wing, Sorkin is kind of getting at less about a like liberal versus conservative thing although obviously his characters and he skews very liberal but i think it's more about faith in american governance you know and like it's putting forth the hope and the ideal that the people that govern us are good people and smart people and will do the right thing and obviously because of his own political viewpoints that happens through the lens of liberal policy more often than not but i think at heart it's more just about america's relationship with the people who govern them and affirming that as a relationship with worth and merit which is kind of uh, hard to hard to do and maybe why a lot of people kind of roll their eyes at Sorkin at the same time this film feels very cynical to me like not in a bad way I am an inveterate cynic and and I'm uncomfortable with films that don't have at least a touch of skepticism of uh, ability to analyze whatever bowl they're shoveling and and look at it in a slightly meta way from the outside but this film like I think the cynicism makes the the romance more real and gives it more stakes. It gives it more weight. It makes it more interesting. But in terms of being uh, like an idealistic fantasy, well, Capra also sometimes very cynical and very dark about the state of America and the state of the people in America. Here you have a a president that is wise and kind and is perpetually hampered by the horse trading aspects of politics, by the agendas people have, and by the fact that the press is petty and overly focused on his personal life, and America itself is petty and overly obsessed with his personal life. There's a feeling that 
everything is working against what's meant to be just like a sweet relationship that is supporting a good man. It, it feels very dark to me, like in a good way that makes the film more interesting, but I don't see it as a very idealistic film about well, America. I, th I think it's cynical about systems, but optimistic about the people within those systems hmm. to work within them and do the right thing within them. I have a question to you all about the, the ending of the movie and his big speech. Mm -hmm. um, his pre-State of the Union speech. Right, right. <laughs> like, it's like, like when he finally... I, I'm, it, it doesn't really change what he's done. <laughs> Right, what he's saying to ultimately win her back does not pass this legislation that she's been working so hard on, right? Right, or, or commit to it in any way. Well, I mean, he he recommits to it at the higher percentage of fossil fuel okay, reduction, I mean, I so he I, like I, kind I, of double I'm, doubles down on that. But I think like that speech is more about him confronting it because throughout the movie he refuses to engage with the uh, Richard Dreyfus character and w the mud that he's slinging and he is just like kind of burying his head in the sand and that seems to be the core of their problem where in this bit like him torpedoing this environmental package that she's worked so hard is just like sort of a side effect of that not even a side effect but it, they go hand in hand i guess so i think that speech is meant to be more about him acknowledging publicly and not apologizing for her and at the same time the mea culpa of i'm going to make this right and I'm going to do it better than I was going to do it the first time. Okay, that makes sense. But what do we think about just the film ending with a speech because <laughs> it works but it's like such Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. It's just I mean, such a it's, it's really a, hard to get around courtroom movies and political movies uh ending with a big speech. It's just how how are you going to feel like a climax if somebody doesn't tell you politically how they feel and, and make some hay out of it? How do you do uh, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington inspired movie that doesn't rely on a big speech at the end? Right. It's kind of or it's a kinda, few good it, men, which was what Sorkin yeah. did. Yeah. I mean, it, tip, it tips its yeah. its it tips its hand that it's going to be doing that it's going to be doing that, but it is a Sorkin tendency, and it's an it's another again familiarity breeds contempt thing where it's like you know la later on we would encounter something like, like the newsroom which is all about those types of moments where 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 will mcavoy you know gets you know steps up and and, and gives you you know this righteous hindsight <laughs> benefit of hindsight you know speech you know, where he's right about everything and everybody else is wrong about everything so um it's uh, uh, I think it's in this context is a lot more tolerable. It's also just such a big fantasy payoff. I mean, who who has dealt with any sort of politics or has any sort of political belief does not these days occasionally fantasize about getting in the last word or about saying something so compelling that other people shut up. I mean, it's just a movie like this, which is a political movie and a romantic comedy has to end with a big statement of some kind that's a wish fulfillment thing. And what could be more of a wish fulfillment than laying down the law so thoroughly that you win. Yeah, such an odd way to end a romance, though. It's like you know, which is about a dance between two partners and finding a balance and everything. And it's just like, all right, here's how I'm gonna here's how I'm gonna wind this up. The guy talks. There's a couple scenes after that. You have the reunion and the, you know, where he's gonna go to her house, but she's already at the at the White House, you know. So you have their coming back together, but. 
you also had like the actual final final scene is him entering uh, for the the State of the Union address, which I think it's mm. it's actually kind of funny or it's it's a bit cheeky that like the big speech isn't the State of the Union. It's like a press conference before the State of the Union, you know, and and I think that that's very smart. Like there there is a version of this where that speech happens during the State of the <laughs> yeah. Union, and it's just like way too much. So uh, oh, and you can say, you can see all of all of this aides panicking because he's he's going off script, are, going off script, right? Those aren't our prepared remarks. <laughs> yeah. What's he doing? Also, uh, I mean, the other option is to end with them getting married or having some kind of pre-marriage <laughs> yeah. commitment. He proposes whatever. Like that's the much more traditional end to a romance, and it would feel so false here after the relationship they've had. Like the the thing I like most about their relationship is the natural slow burn of adults dating and leading up to going to bed together and then kind of like navigating the sexual politics after that like if they made some sort of like long-term commitment after a couple of what months at absolute most in this film it would feel very romantic drama but still very very fake like the 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 big coincidental speech that makes everybody else shut up forever actually seems less false to me than the alternative <laughs> see, see what you got to do you got to cut to like 5 years later and they have a a little girl a baby and then you cut then you cut uh, then you flash term. then you flash forward like 40 years later and that baby's like the first president first female president you know they got to just keep going oh my god maybe long shot maybe that character is uh Sydney Allen Wade and uh, i guess the timing doesn't quite work out there but you know and then you flash forward 100 years and they've all uploaded their consciousnesses into robots and the robots are just programmed to walk constantly so they can like talk to each other I'm, wait, I'm sorry. I just went on a limb there. I, <laughs> I, I got really excited by all this flashing yeah, forward. They call, they call it the walk and beep, the robots. <laughs> I, I think I think bef- before we get too far into the realm of science fiction, maybe we wind this up. Uh, but we'll, we'll return to it with the next episode. And we'll be right back after the break with listener feedback. Now it's time for feedback when our listeners weigh in with their responses to recent episodes and anything else in the world of film. Genevieve, can you read the first one? Sure. Enrico responded to our last episode with some thoughts on Under the Silver Lake. He writes, It might be a fool's errand to look for the deeper meaning of Mitchell's film, but two-thirds of the way through our watch, my friend advanced the theory that the film is about coping with grief. She suggested that Garfield's character suffered some sort of huge loss just before the film's beginning. Maybe the death of his dog? His apathy might therefore be a manifestation of grief-induced depression. Maybe he was so devastated by whatever happened that he stopped going to work. The fact that he has a nice apartment and people keep asking him about his job suggests that until recently he was employed somewhere. His interaction with his ex-girlfriend at one of the parties also suggests a recent breakup, though unfortunately I'm unable to rewatch that scene, which also struck me at the time as qualitatively different from his interaction with the film's other female characters. There's plenty of death throughout the film and a number of significant scenes set underground. The fact that Garfield's character is obsessed with seeking narratives could be seen as an attempt to make sense of the senselessness of death and or human existence generally. And it seems significant that several characters throughout the film feel compelled to tell him that life is short and we might as well enjoy it while we can, which, as Scott noted, is pretty much the only straight answer Sam encounters in his constant questioning. 
This interpretation would fit with Mitchell's oeuvre more widely, since both the myth of the American sleepover and It Follows are both about growing up and the sadness that comes with it. Indeed, I've always thought of It Follows as primarily a film about coming to grips with one's mortality. However, this doesn't necessarily make Garfield's character any less repulsive as a person. Of course, you can be experiencing grief and still be a dick. <laughs> I like that last line. That's very good. I like this whole letter. Yeah, I do me too. too. I uh, I think it may be a case of uh, the viewer being smarter than the film <laughs> because it I, there there are definitely threads in there that you can pick up and interpret that way. I agree that that conversation with his ex uh, has a a very different vibe to it. Um, I mean, he's still the same sort of kind of aimless uh, shaggy dog not very compelling not very forceful character throughout that conversation but it does feel like he had a different relationship with her and it feels like he's it, to me that scene feels like it's about all of the things that are not being said all of the things that especially he's not saying about his feelings for her in the relationship uh, he feels like an absence during that scene like she's introducing sort of all of the the concepts about their former relationship about their feelings about her feelings about her fiance and her future and he's just kind of like passively agreeing with everything she says and it speaks to potentially a lot of emotion that he's covering up i just don't think the film lets us into his head enough to know like what that is or what it meant to him if it's the key to decoding the entire film it's again pretty opaque i'm happy to chime in I'm, i wasn't in the what last think episode of that under I, the silver I, oh, lake yeah. Keith? I was pretty great. <laughs> I really uh, I've been thinking about it a lot since I saw it, and and I don't even know if you have to add in some sort of off-screen death or, or loss. I mean, I, to me, I thought the scene with the X was kind of the key to unlocking what was going on. Is this guy was going through an awful breakup and and creating all kinds of distractions for himself and and uh, sort of desperate attempts to find some meaning in, in what was going through going on in his life. Uh, because that scene was so different and his interaction with her was so strikingly, I don't know, it's not, it still isn't even the right word, but it felt like freighted, I think is probably the, the word I'm looking for. There's a lot going on in, in that moment. So um, I think, yeah, it's, it's a really good letter. I, I just don't know you necessarily need to have some sort of uh, added explanation beyond what you get in the film itself. Yeah, I mean, death, there are different types of death. <laughs> you know, maybe not a literal thing that he's going through, but a relationship ending is a kind of death. And surely, you know, he starts the film or he goes through the film as a completely rudderless husk of a human being. I mean, you know, who has no job and has no ambition and has no future and is it is kind of just grasping for meaning in, in uh, meaning in his life and also meaning in the world around him and so he and uh and a lot of times that's a lot of grasping at straws well the underground bunker sounded kind of cool though i don't know <laughs> <laughs> that was, that what, what the underground that. death bunker <laughs> <laughs> well they had they had a nice tv set up you know really good cell service apparently I don't know. <laughs> and and six months of supplies until the comet the magic comet comes but what a six months it would be i, I guess I don't know. Apart from the harem aspect of it, it looked like sitting around in your butt and watching TV and eating some good food, which I guess is maybe all we want in life. But I don't know. I like to be outside sometimes. What did you think of the piano? Oh, my scene? God. I can't stop thinking Unreal. about that. I wonder if I could do a playlist that's just like all the songs uh, touched on in, in that uh, in that scene. But uh, but boy, that's yeah. that's a remarkable piece of uh, of. Well, I'm a piece of acting. Like, I don't think I really knew that actor before. Um, I, I knew it was someone under makeup. I, I didn't know if it was someone I, I just, someone more famous than it was. But no, I, I, do you remember the name of the actor? Uh, Jeremy Bob. 
yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd never, I don't think I, I'm sure I'd seen Jeremy Bob in things, but, but certainly not in uh, that, that focused. Uh, it was a great, that was a great scene. Yeah. Um, and the, and the, uh, I don't know, is that Kurt Cobain's guitar? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I got a lot of stuff. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, that, that, and that's where the film convinced me that Andrew Garfield was, was really stepping up. You know, that was an incredible scene for him too. For sure, and like, there's so much I want to go back and rewatch and and have another look at. I regret I I rented it through Voodoo, and it's like, oh, it's a few dollars more. Maybe should I just buy it? And I now, I know, of course, I know. regret. Yeah, either you return to it over and over again, or it's the most regrettable experience of your life. It's kind of it was kind of the reactions of that movie. And I think you know what? I'm fine either way. I can definitely see you know spending two, two plus hours with Andrew Gar- that that Andrew Garfield character is. A tough sit, even if you're enjoying the movie. That is uh, not a pleasant guy. Yeah. We have another Under the Silver Lake uh, letter. Scott, can you share that? Kyle from New Brunswick, Canada, also uh, has some thoughts on Under the Silver Lake and conspiracy theories. He writes, Your discussion of Under the Silver Lake made me think of the Alan Moore quote about conspiracies. Moore says, quote, The main thing I learned about conspiracy theory is that conspiracy theories believe in a conspiracy because that is more comforting. The truth of the world is that it's actually chaotic. The truth is that it is not the Illuminati or the Jewish banking conspiracy or the gray alien theory or the 12-foot reptiloids from another dimension who are in control. The truth is far more frightening. Nobody is in control. The world is rudderless. End quote. I thought of this in relation to what Tasha says about none of the conspiracies in Out of the Silver Lake feeling like their centers can hold and Genevieve's rebuttal about the wealthy in their tombs, that rich people can come up with ridiculous ideas and then actually execute those ideas because of their wealth. Adding to this, I think we can read the movie as saying that their wealth allows for these people to import meaning into their lives in the form of these conspiracies. But these conspiracies don't have any greater meaning, and even though they exist as conspiracies, they don't really have any bearing on the rest of us who aren't incredibly wealthy and can't participate. I think this then also works in relation to what Tasha says about how many people are harmed. As opposed to Chinatown, where the rich are hurting an entire city, the only concern of Under the Silver Lake is meaning. And the rich have been able to create that for themselves and keep the rest of us out, even if that meaning is utter nonsense. I agree with your final assessment that Under the Silver Lake may be nihilistic, but at least it's a class-conscious nihilism. Also, what do you all make of the owl's kiss? I thought the sequences with her, especially the one where Garfield watches her on tape, were fantastic. I really enjoyed the owl's kiss as a concept, but that is one of the movie's primary things that does not pay off at <laughs> yeah. all. Like you have still no idea like who she is or what she is, I where she's she still comes in his from. apartment, isn't she? You never <laughs> she, see her leave. She might still be in his apartment, and he just he gave up a look, and he's just like, uh, you know, my life is that I live with the owl's kiss now. It's like a new bosom buddies comedy kind of thing or maybe that's why he moves in with bird lady it's like oh my my apartment has owls kisses now i've got to move on (laughs) i really like that imagery but what exactly is the point of a naked assassin like why why any of it i don't know I, I have to watch it a second time, maybe or third or fifth time. Oh, believe me, no, it does. This movie does not improve on a second viewing. Well, you think it does, but I, I would think that it might. I would again, you know. Feel free yeah. and come back and report. I'm Look very, good. very curious. Um, I do love this quote though that uh, from from Alan Moore because I think there's a lot of truth to it. And, and another thing, the the 
letter got me thinking about about how the, how the wealthy can come up with these ideas and and execute them because of their wealth just thinks makes me think of Fox News, mm-hmm. uh, which is I mean in the president about about this entire ecosystem that is about making up some complete separate reality and then reinforcing it and reinforcing it and reinforcing it until it it becomes a kind of a kind of reality in its own way or kind of, you know, dangerous unreality anyway, because they have the resources to make it happen. But, but if you actually investigate it, it all just kind of falls apart. Um, Are owls kisses killing your children? News at 11. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so, I mean, that's what that kind of got me thinking. I mean, that, that was just my overall impression with under the silver Lake is I, I just felt it kind of like had this hard to define, feeling about how things are now that's that seemed right to me yeah um i agree with tasha about the owls kiss not really having satisfactory payoff that said like that feels like a kind of silly complaint to lodge against this movie (laughs) because that feels like part of the point but uh i agree that it's like that scene that this letter calls out where garfield is watching her on tape is a very is very striking imagery i think the design of that character and just like the revelation of like oh this is probably it's hard to tell with this movie but like oh this is like an actual th- entity that exists physically in the world is like a really interesting shock maneuver that the film pulls in that moment i am kind of bummed it didn't come to anything because that was such a, like I, I remember specifically like sitting up a little straighter in that moment like oh this is where this is all going to start coming together <laughs> <laughs> this is this is what's going to tie it together that work and, uh, how, fo- how foolish of me mm. you know but in a vacuum it is a very striking moment I think if nothing else there's just that feeling of there's so much more going on than you can possibly understand. If somebody's sending around an assassin, that implies more than almost anything else in this this movie that somebody actually knows what's going on and somebody knows who's who knows too much and who is telling the truth yeah. and somebody is doing something about it. And that does imply that the world is not rudderless. It does imply that there's a conspiracy going on. I, I also really like this quote and really like this concept. Mm-hmm. I think the owl's kiss is disappointing in a way because it implies that there is a center to it all and then it just it's it's dropped in such an offhanded kind of way also how exactly does she kill people <laughs> she shows up she just weapons she, she just scares them to death like that ah. <laughs> i mean i i would freak out pretty hard if i looked up and saw that in my bedroom yeah Okay, we always appreciate it when our listeners share their thoughts and their recommendations. If you feel so inclined, we can feature your response on a future episode or post it on Facebook for discussion. To reach us, you'll leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. That's it for this episode of The Next Picture Show. In part two, we'll pair the American president with a more recent political and romantic fantasy, Longshot, in which an out-of-work journalist helps his former babysitter and current secretary of state run for president. Look for that next Tuesday, or better yet, subscribe to The Next Picture Show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcatcher of choice. Find us at nextpictureshow.net, follow us at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow, and follow us on Twitter at at nextpicturepod so you'll always know when a new episode drops. Until then, everyone should try to imagine the America they want to live in and craft some snappy repartee illustrating why. <laughs> <laughs>